0: Sing this song for the
1: healing of the world
0: Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark meet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Did you know that of the top 10 radio talk show hosts in 2019, only two were on the liberal and progressive side? Well, we have one of those two most popular progressive hosts with us today for Spirit in Action. We had Tom Hartman here a few months back, and he's a joy and an inspiration to talk to. In addition to doing a three hours week daily progressive talk show called The Hartman Report, he's written some 30 books, including his Hidden History series. And he's just released his newest in that series called The Hidden History of Monopolies How Big Business Destroyed the American Dream. It's an awesome read chock full of history, analysis, insights, and such clarity that it will fill in many pieces of the puzzle to the big picture of what's happening in U.S. society. Understanding the part monopolies play in our economic and political present is crucial to getting to a better world. One reason that Tom Hartman's broadcasts and writings are so powerful is because of his wide-ranging education and experience. He started six or seven companies, he's worked as a therapist, majored as an undergrad in electrical engineering, and has a Ph.D. in homeopathy. He's written some 30 books, as I mentioned, and has some 7 million listeners to his programs. And that's just scratching the surface. He's already put in three hours today, broadcasting the Hartman Report, so we're fortunate to have him back with us today, joining us via phone from California. Tom, welcome back to Spirit in Action.
1: Well, thank you, Mark. It's great to be here.
0: You've been busy in between, another book out. I guess you actually mentioned that that was coming when I spoke to you back in February, and you've got another one after this, right?
1: Yeah, next spring I've got The Hidden History of Oligarchy and, and Tyranny, The Rise of Oligarchy and Tyranny in America. That's kind of part two of this book. This book is The Hidden History of monopolies, so how Big Business Destroyed the American Dream. Monopoly is where an individual entity acquires massive economic power. Oligarchy is where a political class, a particular niche of the political class, acquires awesome or extraordinary uh, political power.
0: And there's some kind of overlap between them, too. Hugely, yeah. So, again, monopoly is this power that we're talking about. And, you know, you've got so many books out there and a lot of hidden histories. I, I talked to you first about voting. I'm afraid that one of these leads into the other. And what we'd really like to do is disentangle them and find a way to have the people have power. I mean, the subtitle of the new book is How Big Business Destroyed the American Dream. So what's the American Dream from your point of view?
1: The American Dream, to a large extent, is the ability of average working people to have a decent life and build some equity and own their own home and and if they want to be entrepreneurial, start a, a small company that could be a family company like you know, a family dry cleaning shop or a restaurant or something like that. And monopoly power is basically destroy all of the above. There's
0: something else that you say about monopolies in the book that was new to me to thinking about it that way, although I'd certainly thought about the subject. And you talked about a natural monopoly versus the kind of monopolies we're used to thinking of, uh, you know, Microsoft or whatever. Talk about what the other thing is, the natural monopolies that we have to deal with.
1: Well, natural monopolies are those areas where it's not reasonable or appropriate to split it up and sell it off. And, you know, natural monopoly would be things like in your home, there's only one source of water. You know, you're not going to have three water companies competing with each other to bring water into your house. You're only going to have one source of electricity. You're only going to have one outlet for sewage. Increasingly, you're only going to have one way of bringing cable TV and Internet into your home. So the bottom line is that with natural monopolies, those are typically the province of government. About half of all the utility companies in America are run by local communities for their people. And community-owned and run electric companies, sewage companies, and water companies tend to produce much more reliable results, much better product, you know, better, more reliable water. Like, electricity is the area where it really shines, but you see it among all three. And lower cost, because nobody's having to skim 20% off the top to pay, you know, profits to shareholders, and, and there's no CEOs taking multi-million dollar salaries.
0: So how have the conservatives and specifically, I think, Republicans succeeded in vilifying these natural monopolies? I personally think of the garbage company that picks up our garbage and recycling, right? There are at least six or seven of them here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, where I'm living. And I think that the prices are way inflated. And I grew up in a city where the city picked it up and it was all straight. And I think it was much more efficient. Right now, I see six different trucks each week going by here because one house here has this company and the other one has that one. So how did the Republicans succeed in vilifying something that seems so natural
1: and into well, I think it's it's a little harder to make the argument that garbage collection is a natural monopoly because anybody can bring a truck to your house, whereas anybody can't bring electricity to your house. That said, garbage delivery is a really legitimate area for the garbage pickup either, for government to run operations like that essentially as a government-run monopoly. That, that's kind of the gray area where it's where there's a little bit of legitimate debate, or in fact, actually a fair amount of legitimate debate, and where a community could say, you know, yeah, we we would rather have it done by the government. It'll be more efficient. It'll be more cost-effective, you know, et cetera, more singularly accountable in public venues and things. It's one of the nice things about publicly-owned agencies is if you don't like the way they're run, you can yell at your politicians, and if the politicians don't do something about it, you can vote them out and replace them. You know, you try yelling at a company and, uh, you know, standing in their parking lot with a bullhorn or a sign, and they'll have you arrested. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> you know, they don't have to pay any attention to you at all. So that's kind of almost the exception to the rule. And that's, you know, it's, it's such a, tra- what, what's really a tragedy in America with regard to natural monopolies is that the obvious natural monopolies of water, power, and, and sewage, or septic, and arguably cable, have not been... Fully taken over by government. You know, you've got half the people in America are you know living under this tyranny essentially. I mean, you know, for example, we all agree that the fire department should be a government monopoly.
0: Almost all of us.
1: Yeah, there's there's a few libertarians that argue with that, but they're fools. But there are a few towns in America that have private fire departments, but they're very few and far between, and they tend to be out west, and they tend to be very very small communities, and and there are obvious reasons for those exceptions, but. The vast majority of Americans, yeah, you know, we want our fire department to be working for us, you know, and for all of us. The same with our police departments. We want those to be natural monopolies. So it's like, where do we draw these lines? How do we decide what should and shouldn't be the function of government? And I think, you know, whether something is a natural monopoly or not is probably one of the easiest ways to in you know, a very simple, very easily understood way to say this should or should not be the province of competition versus monopoly.
0: But back to my question, and maybe I chose wrongly in terms of talking about the garbage company, because we also have electricity here, too. But we actually have a consumer co-op, a, a cooperative that provides our electricity. And we also have cooperatives available to our lives in several different ways, the credit union we're part of. And so I think they're a different kind of a s- provider. Somehow, Between the late 1800s, when the Sherman Antitrust Act went in, there's a lot of work in breaking down monopolies, standard oil, etc. And then somewhere starting in, I don't know, the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, that's when the pendulum swung the other way. And somehow Republicans convinced people that monopolies should be allowed to flourish and that government monopolies even, they tried to privatize some of the natural monopolies as well. The city can't run it, have a private corporation run it, and then give them 20%, as you say. So could you talk about that swing in
1: mentality? Sure. To a large extent, this happened in the mid-70s through the mid-80s. And what was going on in the 70s was that Robert Bork was running around arguing that the classic ways that we decided, and maybe I'm not answering your question again, maybe, maybe you know, I'm talking about the change in the government's response to business monopolies. Did, and what you're suggesting is that during that same time period, there was massive privatization of publicly owned resources. You know, electric systems and things like that, and that happened as well, and in large part that happened when private companies came in and said to governments that had been captured essentially by right-wing political elites, we will give your community money in exchange for you giving us the, the septic system or the water plant. And, you know, they were flush of cash then, and, and as a result of the Arab oil embargo in particular. A lot of communities and a lot of states, for that matter, around the country lost so much money in the 70s. I mean, New York City was almost bankrupt, right on the verge of it, as were many cities. And so, you know, that provided easy pickings for those guys. That's what you were talking about, right?
0: That's one of the topics, yes. So I know there's two different things going on. There's the natural monopolies and privatization of delivery of those. And there's also the business monopolies who have grown and been unregulated and have been despotic. I mean, leading toward, as you say, fascism, the possibility of it, certainly. So, how did that get sold? You, I mean, you are talking a little bit about Robert Bork, but I think Louis <laughs> Paul's in there too. What's the mindset change? the The criteria that
1: changed that somehow we got sold a bill of goods. Well, what happened was. In the 1970s, or in the, actually in, it starts in the late 60s, with uh, Ralph Nader and, uh, I think it was Rachel Carlson in 65 and Ralph Nader in 67, but the years are in the book. It was r- roughly around that. It was the late 60s. Rachel Carlson published a book called Silent Spring about the dangers of DDT and how it was killing birds, and that kicked off an environmental movement that ultimately led to Earth Day. And then Ralph Nader wrote a book called Unsafe at Any Speed, pointing out that the big automobile companies were making manufacturing decisions that would lead to people dying in car crashes that made the manufacturer cars more profitable for the companies but more dangerous for consumers, and that they were fighting tooth and nail things like seatbelt laws. These two movements animated, among other things, actually along with the steady growth of Social Security And the brand new presence in the marketplace, starting in 67, I think it was, of Medicare and Medicaid and long-term unemployment insurance and welfare programs and food stamps and all these things that came out of LBJ's Great Society in the late 60s. By the early 70s, you had conservative thinkers like Lewis Powell who were firmly convinced that if you aggregated all these things, the regulation of business, the consumer and and environmental movements, the expansion of the social safety net that what this all added up to was America being on the road to communist tyranny, and that we were heading in the direction of the Soviet Union now, the simple fact of the matter is we weren't heading toward anything like the Soviet Union. we might have been heading arguably towards something like you know Denmark or <laughs> or Sweden, and nobody in those countries would ever argue that they have gone communist but Lewis Powell, in 1971, was working as a lawyer. Uh, His largest clients were the tobacco companies and their executives. Uh, He was a Virginia lawyer, a soft-spoken guy who liked to wear light-colored suits and crepe soled shoes. And he wrote this memo in 1971 to his neighbor, a friend of his, Eugene Sindor, Jr., who was the president or chairman or whatever the title was at that time of the uh, U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And in that letter, he said to Eugene, you know, I realized that since, I'm I'm wildly paraphrasing here, but essentially this is it, that he realized that since the 1930s, when Franklin Roosevelt took on the big business folks who had crashed the economy in the late 20s, and said things like, you know, they hate me, and I welcome their hatred, and there will be no new war millionaires. This, this was in the 40s, in the early 40s, during the war. You know, FDR aggressively went after business, raised taxes on business, increased regulations on business. And as a result of this, he won. He beat them back. And American business, which had been very political in the 1920s, Warren Harding, when he ran for president in the election in 1920, his slogans were a return to normalcy, which meant drop that top tax rate from World War I from 91% down to 25%, which he did when he got elected, by the way. And more business in government, less government in business. In other words, privatize government functions and deregulate business. Harding did exactly that, which is what brought us the Great Depression. And, you know, brought us to the roaring 20s, the stock market boom and the crash in income for working class people throughout the 1920s and then, of course, the explosion in 1929. So you had... Lewis Powell saying that you guys in the business world, up until this point, up until 1971, are, have been still licking your wounds from the 30s, you know, from FDR. And it's time to stop. It's it's time to get back into government. It's time to get back into basically running the country. That's what you're destined to do. you <laughs> that's why you're so rich and powerful and famous. <laughs> and, you know, your companies are here and, and, and you need to build think tanks that will get the business message out and justify great wealth. You need to be funding universities so that the political science and economics departments will start teaching, you know, our way of viewing the world and, and you need to fund media companies so that we can have have, you know, right-wing media voices out there and, you know, widely distributed. And you need to uh, come up with an organization that will funnel right-wing judges into our judicial system. And it's unelected. We can have a say in this. And so out of this came the Heritage Foundation, the Cato Institute, the American Enterprise Institute, uh, the Federalist Society that has been providing all these judges to Mitch McConnell. All of these came out of the Powell Memo in 1971. And then in 72, Nixon put Powell on the Supreme Court, and then in 76, Powell voted to say that for the first time in the history of America, if a individual billionaire owned a politician to the point that that politician basically did nothing but propose and vote in favor of legislation that the billionaire wanted, we used to call that corruption, we used to call that bribery, but now we're going to officially call that First Amendment protected free speech. And then two years later, Lewis Powell actually wrote the decision in Boston versus Bilotti in 78 in which they extended that logic to corporations. If a corporation wants to own a politician or even an entire political party, that's free speech. And that completely changed the American business landscape and the American political landscape. It opened not a spigot, a Niagara Falls, a corporate cash and very wealthy person cash into the 1980 presidential election, which put Ronald Reagan in the White House and has been that way basically ever since.
0: Only it got worse in the last 10 years with Citizens
1: United and such. Yeah, yeah. Citizens United was a hyper-ratification of Buckley and Bilotti. So basically, Lewis Powell said, you guys need to get active, and they rose to the occasion, and they did.
0: And here we are. Folks, we're speaking with Tom Hartman. His newest book is The Hidden History of Monopolies, How Big Business Destroyed the American Dream. It's about 150 pages of succinct information, piercing logic and history and insights and direction that we could follow to improve the situation. I highly recommend you get it in all of his other books. I mean, he's got some 30 of them out there, and the Hidden History series in particular I found tremendously valuable. You can, of course, always listen to him. He's the number one progressive talk show host across the U.S. He's got something like a 7 million listeners, and he is a writer with piercing mind and and I'm so thankful to have him here on Spirit in Action. I want to talk about some of the more nuts and bolts leading up to the really daunting situation we have with monopolies right now. You mentioned the game of Monopoly, by the way, in the book, and I've been attached to it because I heard along the way, because I'm Quaker, I heard that a Quaker originated it, to teach, and it wasn't the get called Monopoly, it was the landlord's game or whatever it was, to teach the
1: evils of Monopoly, Right, exactly. It was a warning, <laughs> and suddenly the fat guy was smiling. You know, the, the the businessman with the with the paunch and the and the gold chain with the watch and all that stuff. Yep.
0: And part of what I learned as an adult from the game of Monopoly, I played it with joy and abandon as a, a kid. But what I've learned from it as an adult is. This is a really stupid way to try and run an economy when you have rules that set it so that the richest person can only get richer and the poor people can only go down the hole, except for some small stroke of luck. You know, I mean, the percentage possibility that you're going to climb up the ladder is going to be horrendous. Why don't more people learn from monopoly that
1: monopoly is evil? I don't think most people, when they play a game, realize that it can be generalized. I mean, you know, the thing with the Monopoly game, and anybody who's played it more than a few times knows this, that there's a certain critical mass that you hit where you own enough properties and you you thus have blocked other people from owning those properties on the one hand, and those properties are producing enough ongoing rent revenue that between the two, you can do nothing but grow you know, eventually you're going to end up owning everybody and everything. That's how the game of Monopoly works, and, and you know, the goal is to hit that critical threshold, and, you know, I think a lot of booksellers, for example, can look back and see the point when Amazon's sales were such that the handwriting should have been on the wall for Barnes and & Noble and for all the smaller bookstores. And similarly, you know, you get that sense with Monopoly, but, but I don't think most people because they're not actually running businesses and they're not looking at the business landscape uh, the same way that you would look at a monopoly playing board, they don't realize that you know the guys running United Healthcare or Aetna are thinking the exact same way that you are. You know, when you've acquired all the hotels, you know, on, on <laughs> Boardwalk Park Place. Yeah, Park Place. Yeah, there you go. You know, penny just doesn't fall for most people, which is kind of sad, but easily understood.
0: So we didn't learn from the game, so uh, I, actually there is an alternative form of the game which is cooperative which you can see how everybody could benefit and grow together, but most people don't want to do that because they want blood and guts and and make the other person cry. On the very first page of the book, The Hidden History of Monopolies, you mentioned that the average person, or maybe its household, pays a monopoly tax of $5,000. Where does that come from? What is that referring to?
1: That comes from increased prices. You know, it's pretty straightforward stuff. When You've got an industry that is essentially monopolized. Now, most industries in the United States are not true monopolies. There's not one company that dominates the way Standard Oil of Ohio, for example, owned ninety five percent of the entire oil business in Ohio and Pennsylvania at one point. But typically it's what you what you would call an oligopoly, which is where you have basically business oligarchs who are, you know, controlling that industrial sector. So and they act in concert with each other. So for example, you know, United doesn't have to openly collude with Delta in order to fix prices. All they have to do is monitor each other's online pricing, you know, and and we all know, you know, if United raises their prices five bucks on a particular route, Delta will within 30 seconds. It's, so it's, it's a functional monopoly or you an know, oligopoly. But, the, you know, what happens in those kind of circumstances is that because competition has been destroyed, I mean, the... The, the quick and easy definition of a monopoly is a system for destroying competition. That's the principal thing that a monopoly does. And when competition goes away, prices go up. You know, it's, it's not magic. It's predictable. If, for example, Internet service providers. In Europe, they require competition. So people who are old enough to remember CompuServe and America Online back in the 90s, in the late 80s and, and throughout the early 90s, remember a time when we actually had competition among internet service providers. I had a little modem that I would hook up to my telephone, my landline telephone, and I would dial up CompuServe first at 300 baud, then at 1,200. Eventually, I got up to 2,400 and even 9,600 at one point, and I would enter the internet through that modem, and that was over my telephone line. So, my telephone company didn't own the internet. They just gave me a a doorway into it. But I could pick AOL, or I could pick CompuServe, or I could pick any company I wanted to get in to be on the internet. I just had to use the pipe that my phone company provided to my house to get to that company that was going to give me access to the internet. It was that way in the United States up until the late 90s, basically. And then, or actually it was in the early 2000s, it was during the George W. Bush administration, our federal government, the FCC, basically ruled that if a cable company or a telephone company, for that matter, brought Internet service into your house, the telephone companies through a, uh, a system, the name of which is escaping me at the moment, but it basically a high-speed modem that was connected to the phone lines, there was the property of that phone company and uh, the cable company coming in putting a modem in your house, then you had to buy your service from them. They didn't have to give you access to other companies. In Europe, the way it works is that competition is mandated. So, if you're the companies, uh, you know, here I've got my home service comes from a uh, Comcast. You know, they bring cable TV into the house and internet connection. So, if this was Europe, then Comcast would own the pipe into my house, the tubes. You know, the Are you from Alaska? Are you from Alaska? <laughs> yeah, right. I was just, you know, who who was that senator, right? in any case uh, you know Comcast is on the pipe, but any internet company could offer me internet service through that pipe and they would have to pay a small fee to Comcast. but you know basically, I could get my internet service from them. So there would be hundreds of companies offering internet service and they could, and they could compete on features you know that they've got a great search engine or that they that they offer complete privacy or that they've got lower price, but hey, we, we track everything you do. I mean, you'd have a genuinely competitive marketplace. And that's how it is in Europe. And that's why typically the typical European is getting Internet speeds of around a gigabyte up and down, which is typically, you know, 10 to 20 times faster than most Americans have, for a cost that is typically somewhere between $15 and $30 a month. Whereas Americans get one twentieth, you know, 20 times slower service, less reliable service, And now since uh, Ajit Pai and Donald Trump changed the rules two years ago, your Internet service provider can literally track everything you do. Every keystroke that I do, Comcast, can monitor. And uh, everything that I say, everything that I do, my bank accounts, everything. They have access to absolutely everything. And there's no protection against that. And they can prevent me from buying any other company's Internet service because they own the pipe coming into my house. That's just, you know, one example. You add that across all these different sectors, whether it's airlines, hotels, food services, transportation, automobiles, uh, fuel. Pick your poison, right? Pick your industry. Hospitals is another great one. I mean, you know, Americans spend about twice as much per person out of pocket. Well, actually, we spend massively more out of pocket, but in aggregate, the entire total health care bill for the United States on a per-person basis is twice what it is or more than twice what it is of every other developed country in the world. Why? Well, we've got massive monopolization in our insurance sector. We've got basically five companies that control nationwide, and you've got massive monopolization in the hospital sector. The, these giant hospital companies funded by big hedge funds have bought out all the private hospitals. When I was a kid growing up in Lansing, Michigan, we had three hospitals. Sparrow, which was started by a private foundation by a family, the guy had died and he left his money to endow a hospital. St. Lawrence, which was run by the Catholic Church, and Ingham Medical, which was owned by the county. All were non-profit, all were great hospitals, all served the people. All three of those hospitals are now owned by private for-profit corporations. Service has gone to hell, prices have gone through the roof, and you know, that's what happens. So we all pay that $5,000 a year tax because of this you know, monopoly, because the Grifters Club basically has taken over the country.
0: And again, folks, that's not a literal governmental tax. It's a cost that we pay in addition because of the form of economic system that we've been thrust into. And again, folks, we are talking with Tom Hartman today for Spirit in Action. Track him down via TomHartman.com.
1: Yeah, however you spell it will get you there.
0: Yeah, uh, tomhartman.com. The link's on org, along with all of our guests from the past 15 years. And you get available. Listen to him. He broadcasts daily for three hours, brings all, a whole lot of wonderful information to the world via spoken and television as well so please look him up and follow all that he teaches us about Uh, he's really an excellent commentator and you'll find that if you pick up the hidden history of monopolies how big business destroyed the american dream on my site you can find links to him and you can rate this interview and you can make a donation if you care to but remember please to support your local community radio station and tv station you'll Cable access programs support the local providers who give you an alternative to these monopolies. And I wanted to ask you about that right away because that seemed real important. It's, you know, probably three quarters of the way through the book. You start talking about media and how that has, in order to consolidate the influence that these monopolies have, they wisely, and I use that word advisedly, they wisely decided that they had to control the mindset. So you've already mentioned at universities, you control the departments, uh, who are people who are educating our young people, and so you can push the society in favor of the interests of these monopolies. But the media is very important in this too. Talk about what happened with media.
1: Well, back in the 1920s and the 1930s, when our electronic media was really starting to, it was radio back then was uh, coming about, and you had the the Blue Network and the Red Network, which later became ABC and NBC, I think, or NBC and CBS, actually. The Congress, looking at this situation, and and at that point in time still being pretty enthusiastic about trust-busting, about not having monopolies, decided that it was also a good time to deal with the problem of national newspaper media consolidation as well. The Spanish-American War had come about because... William Randolph Hearst decided that he wanted to have a war, you know, he, he had sent a, a letter to Frederick Remington, who was down in Cuba at the time, saying, you know, you get me the pictures, I'll deliver the war, and thus, you know, when the when the ship, the USS Maine, blew up in Havana Harbor, uh, Remington got him the photo, Hearst put it in the papers, and boom, we were in a war, and it wasn't even blow. I mean, it was a boiler blew up, <laughs> but in any case, so in the twenties and thirties, they said, "Well, let's take a, a little more holistic look to this. Look at this, and, and the way that they could do it was through the electronic media. Nobody wanted to regulate newspapers, but basically, what they said is if, if somebody owns a newspaper, they can't also own a radio station. And then uh, later in the in the thirties and forties, this was extended to television." And if you own one radio station, you couldn't own you know another, or you could own two or three, but they couldn't be in the same geographic area. The, the whole idea was to prevent any economic entity, family or company, from having the kind of political power that comes out of controlling the media. And they did not want that to happen. And so, and so there were these very, very strict ownership laws that had to do with the media that extended to newspapers as well that, that stood until uh, the 1990s. And in 1996, ostensibly in response to the rise of the Internet, in order to provide some rules of the road for the Internet, this is where, for example, the exception to, tax, uh, to sales taxes came from. This is where the exception from liability came from, where Mark Zuckerberg can publish stuff on Facebook right now. It's patently illegal and has no liability whatsoever. They passed this law in 1996 called the Telecommunications Act of 1996, to jumpstart the internet, basically, you know, which was arguably a noble goal, although I think you could argue that it didn't need jumpstarting, but nonetheless. And in the process, then you got these people from radio, television, and newspapers who got in on the lobbying on this thing and said, "Oh, well, let's just do away with these ownership rules." And so they did. And so you know, by 1998, two years later. Ah, uh, you had a little regional company, Clear Channel, that you know owned a couple dozen radio stations over a couple of states. All of a sudden, you know, owned nine hundred plus radio over, actually at one point over a thousand radio stations in every major media market and virtually every medium-sized media market in the United States. And what did they do with that programming? They put Rush Limbaugh on most of or many of them. So not only you know did they control the media, but they controlled the message as well. And And, I mean, it just hit really absurd levels, and we're still there, by the way, but, you know, one of the stories in the book is about a, a town, as I recall, it was in Idaho, somewhere out west, in any case, there was a train derailment, and some poison gas was leaking out of this train car, and they needed to notify the people in the town, and there were three radio stations in this town, but all three of them were owned by Clear Channel. And all three of them were being programmed out of New York, and there was literally not a physical human being in any of these radio stations. So they couldn't get the word out. I mean, people were injured as a result of this. People could have died. This is still where we're at. We blew up our media ownership rules, and frankly, I think we need to bring them back.
0: And one of the factors that you mention in the book, The Hidden History of Monopolies, is... I think the right wing, uh, the conservatives, the Republicans, decided much earlier on that it's important to take control of the media. The left has not invested in the same way. And so, therefore, your program, my programs don't have the investment behind us. No one came up to us with a $100 million and said, you know, go, Tom, go, go, Mark, go. Talk about where we fail and where we should have moved forward. And one of the reasons I'm a big supporter of Pacifica, et cetera, why I think these programs, these alternative voices are so important.
1: Yeah, there has never been the kind of money on the left that there is on the right, first of all, for political activity. And the reason why it's fairly obvious, the right represents the interests of billionaires and business, and they've got the money. And the left represents the interests of working people and the poor, and they don't have the money. Yeah, there are a few liberal billionaires or very wealthy people. You know, George Soros is the one who's most frequently demonized by people on the right. But they put virtually nothing into, particularly into the media space, but into, frankly, anything, you know, that's political. It's it's uh, outside of political candidates. That's about it. So I don't know what to say beyond that, but, that. You know, Rush Limbaugh, for example, there was an article that Ken Vogel wrote for Politico four or five years ago that pointed out that, The Heritage Foundation was giving Rush Limbaugh a million dollars a year. They were giving Sean Hannity a million dollars a year. They're, you know, just basically to get their message out, right? To to get favorable coverage on on those shows. There is no liberal foundation that even has the means to give me a million dollars a year, much less the willingness to. It just literally doesn't exist. And so there's this very robust, very well-funded, billion-dollar industry on the right That supports think tanks in every single state, the state policy groups that Charles Koch helped create, that control state legislatures through the American Legislative Exchange Council that Charles Koch helped create. There's federal groups, there's local groups. I mean, they're all very, very well funded. There is literally no funding for that on the left nationwide or even locally. So it, it shouldn't surprise us that the media landscape looks the way it does.
0: I want to bounce an idea off of you. It's one I have. I hold kind of tenaciously to it. But part of it is I think that those of us on the left, and I identify myself as sitting there, we don't play together well. That is to say we're not good at hierarchy, at marching in lockstep. You know, in consolidating our ranks, you know, the Democrats are as likely to kill each other as they are to take down a Republican who's running for office. Right. That's pretty typical. And I think particularly as of the late 60s, it became really a mark of prestige for the left to not be a joiner. Not I'm not a Democrat. I'm an independent. I'm not a member of a church. I do my own spiritual thing, et cetera. cetera. And I think that has made it consistently harder, in particular for unions, because a lot of people have considered it pride. You know, I don't have the union telling me what to do. It's just the business that controls me instead. But anyway, I so I think that there's been a mind drift, if you will, of culture over the last 50 years that has also weakened the left from that point of view. I, I'm interested in your, because you're such a student of history, and if anybody knows anything about Tom Hartman, he knows his history. What do you think?
1: Well, I think it's two things. Number one, you've got the old Will Rogers joke that, you know, I'm not a member of an organized political party, I'm a Democrat. (laughs) And cliches that go along with that, you know, like Republicans, you know, Democrats fall in love, Republicans fall in line and stuff like that. And there is some truth to the notion that right-wing political parties tend to bring along People who are authoritarian followers and authoritarian leaders tend to run those institutions. And when they say do it, uh, their regions of followers say, okay, yes, sir, sir, yes, sir. Whereas on the democratic side, it's more, hey, we all share an idea, we all share a set of values, but we have different opinions about how to get there. That said, I think that there's a dynamic that's usually overlooked in that conversation. And that's the dynamic we were talking about a minute ago, Mark, which is money. If there was a political funder who came along on the left, who, you know, a foundation or a billionaire, and that billionaire said, you know, anybody who's really in favor of Medicare for all, I'm willing to make things work for you. So, you know, Mark, you're doing a radio show. We'll give you a grant for half a million dollars a year for your show. Tom, we'll give you a half a million bucks a year. Uh, we'll buy advertising on on your, you know, on your show on SiriusXM or whatever. You know, if there's grassroots groups that are doing uh, the canvassing or something like that, we'll fund them. Here's a million bucks for them, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And everybody knows what the real agenda of the group that's doing the funding is. They don't have to, nobody has to ask for quid pro quo. It's just, this is who we are and this is what we're all about. Medicare for all is our main issue. By the way, here, have some money what you would see is much greater uniformity across the left in terms of focused messaging. And because there's no single money source and there's no source of leadership in terms of providing or you know, nationally syndicated newspaper articles and columns and, and all the stuff that you know a think tank can provide, the left tends to be very scattered. But I think the main thing is not the temperamental part. I think the main thing is resources. I think the left is scattered in part because everybody is scuffling so hard trying to get everything together and try to get their message out that they end up competing with each other for the few small resources that are out there. And, you know, you've got competing ideas about the best ways to do things.
0: We could continue this conversation into a greater depth. I have some more ideas that relate exactly to what you said, Tom, but I think it's real important to get to the idea of what solution we can have to this centralization of power, either monopoly or oligarchy. Along the way, my thought was that when corporations get so large, you need an entity that's as large and as powerful to counteract them. The Republicans have vilified government, even as they controlled it, and said, we've got to, you know, beat it to small enough size so that we can kill it, right? And they've also done that with unions. And those were the two forces that I think the common people had to counterbalance the strength of the richest people, the corporations. So unions have obviously are a shadow of what they used to be in government itself. It's still pretty big, obviously. But now it's just a puppet of the Republicans, as far as I can see, in in just so many places. What's your input on that?
1: Well, you could say it's a puppet of the Republicans. I'd say it's probably the other way around. Republicans are a puppet of big business. What
0: can we do to balance against this centralized power of monopoly? What forces do we have available to us?
1: Well, we need to reintroduce competition. The, The simple reality, and this is where you were going at the very beginning of your question, is that there is only one force on Earth. That can stop a corporation, say a giant refinery down the road from you, from pouring poison into your air, or a coal mine up, upstream from you from dumping their waste into the rivers and poisoning your your drinking water, or your bank from ripping you off, you know, with uh, hidden fees and exploiting mortgage products and things like that. And that one singular force that has the ability to restrain billionaires and corporations is called government. And this was clearly identified in the 60s and 70s by conservative thinkers, which led to Ronald Reagan in January 20th of 1981, and right after he was sworn in in his first inaugural address, saying, government is not the solution to your problems. Government itself is the problem. And, of course, if you're a billionaire, or if you're running, you know, like if you're the Koch brothers and you're running giant refineries along the Gulf Coast, uh, government is a problem. You know, they make it more expensive for you to do business. You got to put scrubbers on your refineries and things like that. So, you know, Reagan was merely expressing the sentiment of billionaires and big corporations. But for the average person who wants some relief from monopoly, who who doesn't want Comcast to own the only entry point into the internet for them, who doesn't want uh, their hospital to be able to do surprise billing BS and ruin them financially for the rest of their lives because, you know, somebody broke their arm in a car accident or something. For the average person, the only alternative is government. The only place they can turn is government. And, you know, we need to wake people up to this. The government isn't a bad thing unless you're a billionaire and don't want to pay taxes or unless you're a polluting company and you don't want to be regulated or, you know, polluting or or ripping off or, you know, whatever it may be. That fundamental lie, you know, that the 12 most dangerous words in the frightening words in the English language where I'm from the government, I'm here to help, another Reaganism, Margaret Thatcher saying there's no such thing as society, there's only a collection of individuals. These are core lies, these are foundational lies that were used and have been adopted wholesale by conservative media and conservative commentators and conservative politicians. Conservative, of course, is the political philosophy that believes aristocracy is superior to democracy or a republic. It's always been that way, by the way. These foundational lies have to be exploded. We have to wake people up to the fact that these lies have been used to control you and to extract at least $5,000 a year from you and your family and do a lot of other harms to you as well, to stifle innovation in the workplace, to prevent you from getting a raise. You know, the, the average working person in America has not seen their income increase since 1980. I mean, you know, that, that was the last year that people got pay raises outside of the billionaire class or outside of the very wealthy or the CEO class. So we have to make that clear.
0: Do unions have their role to play in this recovery? I mean, I'm I'm looking towards solutions. What do we do to redress this balance of power? You list a number of solutions at the end of The Hidden History of Monopolies, How Big Business Destroyed the American Dream. Tom Hartman wrote the book, folks, and you should take a good look at it. 150 pages of gold. So do unions have their role to play? I don't think you talked about that in the book.
1: If I didn't, I should have. And unions exist as a... Basically, they exist because of government. Prior to the 1930s, we had unions, but they were pretty ineffective, and they were constantly... You know, union organizers were constantly getting murdered by thugs being hired by big business. But Franklin Roosevelt, in, the, in 33 passed the Wagner Act, the National Labor Relations Act, that yeah, might have been later than 33. it might have been 34, or 35, but in any case, he passed a law that gave unions a legal establishment, the legal right to exist and to push back against corporate power. And that was a momentous turning point for the American middle class. That created the modern American middle class. So that by 1980, the year that Reagan was elected, um, one-third of America had a good union job, and another third of America had the equivalent of a good union job because union jobs set the local wage and benefits floors. Reagan took that on head on. His first job was to destroy the unions. He did it by going after the Professional Air Traffic Controllers Association, one of only two unions that had endorsed him before the election because he promised them he would allow them to strike after the election. They struck after the election. They had a strike after the election and he fired them, all 30 some odd thousand of them, just wiped out their union, ended it. And, you know, that was the end of that. And then the Supreme Court, there's a chapter in my book, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America, that actually lives online. This chapter is online because it's kind of dry stuff, but it's just a a blow-by-blow, year-by-year recounting of Supreme Court decisions that specifically destroyed the power of unions and the right of unions to exist.
0: It's pretty horrendous. Now, one of the things that used to exist, and again, we've only got a few minutes here, but I'll, just a couple salient points from the Hidden History of Monopolies. It used to be that corporations were controlled by the state. They lived in perished because the state said, okay, you're gone. You're not doing the will of the people. And somehow that disappeared.
1: Say a few words about that, if you would, Tom. Prior to the 1890s, uh, corporations, well, to this day, corporations have to be chartered by individual state governments. But prior to the 1890s, every corporation in the country had to have as its first statement of purpose that it was here to serve the citizens of the state in which it was incorporated. And every year or every two years, depending on the state, the Secretary of State had to examine the books of every corporation in the state and determine whether they were serving the community's best interests. And if they weren't, these corporations were given the corporate death penalty. They were shut down. Their assets were sold off. And that happened a couple thousand times a year. In the late 1890s, though, there was a period of about six years that is referred to in history as the charter-mongering era. Corporate charters, uh, we, we used to refer to the articles of incorporation and bylaws of a corporation as the corporate charter. In response to John Rockefeller being threatened by the state of Ohio for monopolistic behavior, this he said to all the other states, okay, Ohio's not going to change their rules, and they're going to put me in jail if I keep doing this. So what state will change their corporation rules to provide a nice environment for Standard Oil? And Connecticut, New Jersey, New York, and Delaware got into a, into a... Bidding match? Yeah, a bidding match to the bottom, you know, right, to see who could reduce their uh, rules the most. Delaware ended up reducing their rules the most. and in, in Delaware, you can incorporate with a single person as the incorporator uh, with this one-sentence statement of purpose. This corporation is incorporated to do whatever is legal in the state of Delaware and basically with no oversight. New Jersey got Rockefeller's business because they got damn close to that. Delaware was a little later. Among the other changes was doing away with the 20- to 40-year lifespan of a corporation, doing away with the requirement the secretaries of state examine the books of corporations, and basically all the rules of, of the, corporation. The, the corporation. The modern corporation went through a huge evolutionary change, or a huge change anyway, maybe devolutionary, during that era. So that by the time the 20th century arrived, it was a whole different ballgame.
0: And we could talk about more factors involved in that. Patents and copyrights certainly are relevant. You talk about them in The Hidden History of Monopolies. One last topic, and that is capitalism. The Republicans make a big deal that they are in favor of capitalism. And I think you're in favor of real capitalism, certainly mixed with proper government functions for the natural monopolies where they belong. So what do you think is really we should be identifying by this capitalism and what, is, what are the Republicans actually referring to?
1: Well, most people have a misunderstanding of, of what that word means. Capitalism is a system whereby people can use their capital, their money, to make a living for themselves. And a capitalist is a person who earns their living off their money rather than off their labor. So there's really only a few thousand capitalists, maybe a few 10,000 capitalists in the United States. People like Tara Silton, who, you know, she literally earns her living sitting on her butt around the pool waiting for the dividend checks to arrive every month and depositing them in the bank. You know, it's tough work, but somebody's got to do it. So people think that small business people, you know, I've started seven companies in my life they think that I'm a capitalist. I'm not. I've never been a capitalist. I've never lived off my capital. I don't to this day. I've been an entrepreneur. I've been a a person engaging in free enterprise, but not capitalism. One of the companies I started, a travel agency in Atlanta in 1983, I put in 15,000 bucks, which I borrowed from American Express on my line of credit. And there was a local guy who, put in 15000 He was a capitalist. He was a wealthy guy in Atlanta. And he said, yeah, I'll invest in your company. And when we sold the company, three years later, we built it up to a $6 million company. He wasn't involved in running it. He just put the money in. When I sold the company, he made out like a bandit. That's what capitalists do. That's the one time my life has interacted with a capitalist. So the rules of business are not, you know, there's a place in there for people for investment, basically which is the capitalism part of capitalism. But really what we're talking about is, is free enterprise. It's, it's the ability of businesses to function and do business. That's a body, as it were. You know, free enterprise business is, is sort of your body or mine. You know, there's, there's all these interlocking pieces and interconnected pieces that have to work cooperatively with each other. And if they don't, the body dies. And, you know, in our bodies, if an individual single cell rises up and says, I'm going to take over the whole body, I'm going to reroute all the nutrients to me, we call that cancer. And we have an immune system, which fights cancer. We're producing cancerous cells every day, and our immune system is killing them off every day. It's just normal. And that's why when people get diseases like AIDS that ravage their immune systems, they very frequently develop cancers like Carposi's sarcoma. But in the business world, that cancer is called Monopoly. And our business landscape in America is riddled with cancer. We're like in stage four cancer. So, you know, we, we, need, to, we need to purge ourselves of this cancer and, and restore competition and restore balance. And you do that by breaking up these big companies. So the problem isn't capitalism. The problem is that the rules of capitalism have been rewritten to strip out the immune system. The immune system was the Sherman Antitrust Act and its, and it's fairs. And The stripping out happened in 1982-83 when Reagan instructed the federal government to stop enforcing those laws, and no president since then has said, hey, it's time to start enforcing those laws again. The last president to do that was really Richard Nixon breaking up AT&T, and Jimmy Carter finished that job.
0: And There's more solutions that you can read about in The Hidden History of Monopolies, How Big Business Destroyed the American Dream. You'll understand why monopoly is anti-business. You'll understand a whole lot about the history that got us to this point and the solutions that will get us to a saner and safer future. Tom Hartman has been my guest here today for Spirit in Action. Tom, I love the work you're doing. I'm so excited for all of the ways in which you're pushing this country to be in a safer, saner, more holistic way. And uh, given your degree in herbalism and homeopathy and your PhD from Goddard College, and as a matter of fact, as a psychotherapist in Vermont, you certainly have looked at the world's mind and our economy and our culture in a way that's piercing and instructive. And I thank you so much for doing that work and for joining me today for Spirit in Action.
1: My pleasure, Mark. Thank you for having me.
0: Again, his website is TomHartman.com. You don't know how to spell Tom with an extra H in there that most of us wouldn't put in. Come via Nordenspiritradio.org, and I'll have a link to him. Listen to him on Sirius XM or on a whole number of both community and commercial stations, and uh, listen to him daily for three hours and get all of his 30 or so books. Join us next week for Spirit in Action.